as we uh, get ready for chapter 13 here. Uh, it's kind of like a milestone. It's an ongoing ministry of the gospel of Christ. And the church is getting ready to explode, as if it hadn't already, but uh, as far as its evangelistic effort into the Gentile world. And uh, we know when God's good news and the gospel and the church explodes out, that it will always get opposition from Satan. (laughs) And that's what happens here in uh, chapter 13. Satan would like to shut down the efforts to build the kingdom of God. But he doesn't win, does he? Uh, so, but I think it's good to know and be uh, reminded that he is active. And whenever the church sets out to accomplish the work of God, the church can be expected to face opposition of the enemy. And so as we go into the 13th chapter, we see a, a critical chapter. Uh, it expands into God's kingdom that he has in mind. And uh, he's developing a mission uh, of the church. and So that's why it's a pretty crucial chapter. Twenty-five uh, years or so, it's been since Pentecost now as we get into chapter 13. And so that's how far it's moved along. And you can imagine that uh, the church has been uh, very powerful. It's flourishing. Of course, it was in Jerusalem. And then we know it branched out and reached the rest of Judea and then on up into Samaria, and then some Gentile kind of areas that were kind of close, but uh, now it's uh, really expanding out and getting ready to go much further. Um, Uttermost parts of the earth, this is where Paul is going to play a, a big key role. And the church at this time has a very effective base for out into the world because out there where they're at in this pagan world is a place called Antioch. And that's kind of uh, like the headquarters at this time. This is a key church, a very important church uh, that God is going to use as a beachhead out into the pagan world. church had a great start and we've seen that chronicled all the way through and uh, great growth, great impact that it had great attitude. It was a marvelous church. It's a Christ-honoring church. Exalts God. Spirit-filled church, wasn't it? By saying that, it's just a lot of different local churches all all around now. Precious people that were worshiping God and glorifying His name and learning His Word and walking in the power and the energy of the very Holy Spirit. And uh, and that's that's the key to to all of this. Uh, Spirit of God leading them had a very strong doctrinal basis at that time. Strong foundation in the truth of God. There were gifted men. We've seen some of them. We've seen some killed. We've seen some just move on and thereabouts. Very highly trained, very capable people in that uh, very early church. The foundation is laid or being laid. And uh, I think it's a great blueprint, a great model, a great design, an example for the body of Christ today to to look at, to see how God works through that and how um, they are to minister. A lot of things that we can take from it. Uh, It was a church committed uh, to do what uh, 
we'll see here in Antioch from there on. So we were saying the key to the church, the key to the Antioch church there was the, the Spirit of God. The control of the very Spirit of God. You look in uh, verse 2 of our chapter tonight. Uh, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. So the Holy Spirit is definitely present right there. And then in verse 4 we say, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And then in verse 9, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, Barnabas, how many times have we seen this all the way through the book of Acts anyway? Barnabas was a man full of the Holy Spirit. Those deacons that were chosen to help serve there in Acts 6, they were um, men full of the Holy Spirit. Very capable when you have the Holy Spirit. And so the leaders at Antioch, they're ministering, they're fasting, they're praying, they're giving the Word out, and they're, they're under the control of whom? Holy Spirit, because that's what Spirit-filled is, under His control. And that's the key to any church at any time. It was from very day one all the way to where we're at right now. Um, and being Spirit-filled, being controlled by the Spirit, means really people walking in consistent obedience to the will of God according to the Word of God. And so desiring that His will be expressed through them just being filled with Him. and So, we see that. We see Paul then now being established in his ministry that is going to be well known. And Luke here, who is writing this, is establishing the very validity of a direct witness to the Gentiles. And Paul playing a key role here with some other ones. And he also credits Paul with credibility. He's not some guy who was a former murderer and what is he doing to get out of this all here, what's happening. But it's showing that he is credible as an apostle to do what he's doing. So we know, first of all, Paul was clearly called. He was sent out by the Holy Spirit. And um, we see that in the first four verses along with some other guys. And then we also see Paul performing the signs of an apostle And then also we see Paul preaching like Peter had preached. Of course, we've uh, seen Stephen, how he preached. And they were very, very similar. They had probably different um, ways of delivering it out, different voices, but they all are speaking the same thing about Christ and one's need for salvation as one is in sin. And so that kind of sets us up for this chapter 13. Let's pray as we recognize we need Him every hour. Father, thank You during this hour that we have, this time that we um, spend with You and spend with others. And may we be servants of You by just, first of all, worshiping You, worshiping You according to the very Word of God, being driven by the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, that we would realize that ministry always starts with pursuing You and at the same time knowing that uh, we serve You by also serving others. And help us to be 
aware of that constantly and depending upon you and whatever we do as we learn from uh, this ministry here that had been set in this early days of the church. Thank you for this time and may your spirit guide us in further clearer truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. When we get in the first verse, spiritual men, these spiritual people here in Antioch, it says, uh, now I'll read the first three verses here to start off with. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Like I said, this is a really an integral part of the book of Acts. It gets things going on the outside now. No longer are we operating from Jerusalem uh, as we study this, but we can see it's, it's further out there to go out and get into the rest of the world. Uh, speaking of leadership, if you go back to that Acts chapter 6, that was a good pattern right there whenever there was a little bit of, uh, com- I guess, squabble. There was complaints going on, the church getting uh, bigger, and there had to be some needs met. Uh, It says in verse 2, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. So the twelve are saying we we must pray and and study the Word. But there must be some other men who are leaders that, that can help here. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So there you go. These men have good reputation. They're full of God's Spirit, full of His wisdom. And these are the right men to have, aren't they? And that's exactly what you have here uh, going on at um, Antioch. That was originally in Jerusalem there in Acts 6. If, if we look in Acts 6, verse 5, it says, "...the statement found approval with the whole congregation..." And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And you look at verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Full of grace, full of power, full of the Holy Spirit. And we see... Uh, the effect that went out just in that world at that time. They were led by spiritual men, led by these spiritual guys here. These are kind of like giants there in uh, in Antioch, where some of them we know really well. starts off with Barnabas. We've already met him. A son of encouragement. A comforter. What a man to have. And he was a Levite from Cyprus, which is where they're going to be heading. That's a good place to go. Go to some place where somebody's familiar with. Um, He had tremendous Old Testament knowledge. He knew the Bible. Chapter 12 tells us he was full of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 11, uh, rather, he's full of the Holy Spirit. A Spirit 
Spirit-filled Jew trained in the Old Testament. I mean, it's like he lived in the Old Testament. He knew that. That was the Bible. He was a scholar. And he had quite the sterling character too, didn't he? So, uh, it starts off in that list. A highly respected man. Very highly loved. And he was a very warm-hearted, encouraging kind of man. A marvelous teacher of the Word of God. Quite a theologian he must have been. We think of Barnabas and just a son of encouragement, but he knew God's Word. And uh, that's what he took out. Then there's the guy by the name of Niger. Um, Simeon called Niger, it says there. And Niger means black. And to be honest with you, there's really only one race. If you go back to the book of Genesis, in the very outset we see that one race. It's mankind. And uh, that's always good to think about. We have the answer to all the racial things that are going on. It goes back to God created one human race. And uh, they didn't seem to have a problem with it back at that time in in a lot of ways. Um, There was no race distinction right there in the early church. Here's a leader of the Antioch church. And um, anyway, uh, he would be a Gentile. There were there were Gentiles, there were Jews. I guess you could put put it like that. But uh, Lucius is another one of Cyrene. He's a Gentile. He's also from Africa, uh, probably that close to that same area, and uh, so very possibly an, another man who happens to be black. Um, Manian. He was brought up from Herod in the family of Agrippa. As it says there, he brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, Herod Agrippa. And that's amazing. What a transformation he must have had. He probably had to sit down out of there. <laughs> I bet. We've seen, we've already seen the story of Herod, haven't we? And uh, of course, we saw what an evil man he was. And then you got another. have another man here by the name of Saul. What a background that he had. Terrible history of killing Christians, but he's destined to be the key to the pagan world evangelization. And what theology this man Saul, otherwise known as Paul. Yeah. Well, I know later on in uh, what is it? Um, Verse 9, he calls him Saul again, and eventually we'll just see Paul. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, and I think we see that transition then happen. And verse 13, he's then called Paul. So in 13, he's kind of carried over. And I think Luke wanted to stress that. And so he mentions Saul here and again, and then it just kind of fades off. And of course, when you think of Saul, you think of that Benjamite Saul, King Saul. But Saul had a very shady past. And I think Paul, um, who actually will then take on a kind of a national or internationalistic name, I think Paul means small. But, um, <laughs> but he was not a small man in the uh, kingdom of God, was he? But um, he was not... He was not uh, like Saul as God uses him here. And so I think that name change probably was pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, very same tribe there, wasn't it? Right. So when you have Saul, you have a Hebrew name. And Paul, you have a Gentile name. And so you see, well, he's going to be going to the Gentiles. And so that would probably be a good name to carry out there anyway. They could identify and recognize that maybe a little bit better in some ways. Of course, he goes to the synagogues. You can call me Saul. You can call me... No. All right, we won't go any further. You, you call where I was going and you're... Uh, <laughs> Five godly preachers and teachers. Quite a, an arrangement of people. Kind of a, a motley crew in a way. Some of them could have had some backgrounds as we all had backgrounds, didn't we? Amazing how God takes that background and shapes it. It takes a lifetime, but He's shaping it. One day it'll all be perfect. But some were wealthy and some just common. But the commonality that they have here is they're filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God resides within them. I think there's a great principle here that, uh, man, when you have godly people come together, what a work they can do with the power of God, the Spirit of God. And, of course, they're going to be going out into places that most people wouldn't want to be touched. <laughs> they wouldn't want to be going to. Um, we already talked about Antioch and how wicked of a city it is. And some of the cities they're going to be going to are on the same level. Um, it's no different than today. You just pick a city and you're going to go to wickedness. It could be Miami. It could be New York City. It could be Chicago. <laughs> just pick it out, you know. Seattle. You have crime. You have all sorts of different things going. Columbia, Missouri. Jefferson City. <laughs> Ferguson. Taos. Spiritual, spiritual people. That's who God is going to use to be able to do this. It's amazing that He would use people to take His precious gospel out. People who at one time had actually even hated it. Some of them. Let's go to the spiritual ministry they have. Verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord. So wait a minute. Other than ministering to each other. Ministering to the people. Yeah, but they're actually ministering to the Lord. And we'll, we'll catch that word here that we'll probably define a little bit better. Uh, they're fasting. This is when the Holy Spirit will set them apart. Have you ever wondered what the duty of a leader uh, is? To minister to the Lord. To minister. Serve the Lord. Fast and pray. Take His Word out and spread it out. To disseminate that Word and to pray. And that's the same perspective that we have way back in Acts chapter 6. The Word of God and prayer. That's what they really are going to be doing. All of their service in verse 2 is seen as a ministry to the Lord. And everything they did was a spiritual sacrifice to Christ. And matter of fact, I think that's a good thing for us to think about. Anything that we do during the day no matter how mundane it is, how simple it may be and seem further than 
away from the church than it could ever be just in picking up things around the house to <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's called ministry to the Lord it really is it's a it's a really a sweet smelling aroma to God when we just uh, let ourselves be open to Him. The word there for uh, minister this time is not diakonos. And usually that's the case. The word here this time is liturgia. And some of you might pick up on that. And uh, Carmelo, what, what would be our English word for that? There you go. And liturgy means simply this, a priestly manner, uh, a worship. Liturgy is worship. Uh, there are liturgical churches. It's really an order of worship is, is what it is. Uh, taking things. and So anyway, they, they see their ministry of the people as an act of worship to God. When, when you're worshiping God, and when you're praying, when you're singing to Him, when you're reading His Word and listening to His Word, when you're taking communion, all those things, that's all a part of worship of God. And then when you go out and you serve people, you're actually worshiping God doing that. Yeah. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, of course. Um, you might ask, well, I don't really know. What do I, what do I give to God? I, I don't sacrifice any lambs. That's good. I don't sacrifice turtle doves. You know, I don't sacrifice any goats or ram offerings. That's what they did all throughout the Old Testament history. But our sacrifice today is our service rendered to the Lord, whether it be in something obvious that's worshiping Him. Like right now, this is part of worship. The songs that we sing, that was part of worship. Coming together, just speaking with each other, it should be part of that. But um, it's really to the Lord. Right. Right. Even back then, that was really taught that way. Of course, they had the uh, the illustrations. You know, if you have a right heart, then they're worshipped physically with those with those animals of sacrifice. But it started with the heart. And if they can, if they sacrifice those animals, it's absolutely nothing if if it's not really come from here. And I think that was the main problem as it had developed all throughout Israel's history. They did the outward, but wasn't wasn't there. So I think it's a really good thing, you know, when you get it when you have a chance to to do something and serve the Lord. Remember that what you're doing, no matter what you're doing, you're you're actually serving serving Him. Go to First Peter, First Peter two five. Now, you know what. We're not going to hear hardly much of Peter anymore. We've been seeing him all this study through Acts, this first part, most of the time. And I think he shows up in chapter 15, but um, things shift. Even though he's continuing to do his his work in serving God, it's just that uh, there's some more time now given out further out. He says in First Peter two, let's pick it up verse four, and coming to him as a as to a living stone, 
which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So here's your, here's your um, serving, here's your sacrifice, here's your liturgia for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You notice he says we're a holy priesthood. We don't have the garb that they have. We don't have the animals that they have. But we're offering up spiritual sacrifices. And they're acceptable to God. He he loves that when it comes from that humble and contrite heart. Yes. In Hebrews 1315, it says, Mm, that's a perfect verse. That is perfect because, uh, yeah, he, he defines it there. Of course, any time that we're using our lips and our voices to shout praise God, of course, anybody can say, "Well, that's that's worship," you know. And we when we say those, it's a fruit of lips, and we're thanking Him for who He is and all about His name. But you notice the works comes in right after that by serving others. Yeah, that's beautiful. Doing good, sharing, and so when we have when we when we go to the Lord first, we realize it's worship that way, and it's still going to continue to worship. Worship is all day long, but we worship Him first, and then we serve. You know, we, we make sure we want to get that order. I've always heard sometimes there are actually people, a lot of people, that say, "Well, evangelism is the most important thing. It's more important than worship." And I think they've got it backwards. I, you know, although evangelism is part of worship, I think it all starts with having our focus on the Lord and having Him direct us to where we're going to do that. So I think worship, if we're going to divide it up that way, and I don't really think you can even divide it up. Because right there in those two verses, it put it all together as one, didn't it? Yeah. Well, that verse uh, 2 there kind of speaks to what you were just saying. While they were worshiping the Lord, fasting the Holy Spirit, Set apart from the environment and salt for the work, which I've called them. So, where do you know, kind of description of uh, what we're to be doing, and then the Spirit will lead us, you know, how He has us to go. Yeah. For Him. Worship and instead, instead of just getting on our horse and heading out, well, I'm going out. Yeah. <laughs> Forgot one thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even Abraham, you know, he didn't know where he was going, but at least God was the one who said it. He led him there, didn't he? Yeah. Just like the Spirit he of God led him there. Say, I think there's a God and we'll find him. That's right. So, yeah, quite the quite the spiritual ministry. I like that right there. The Holy Spirit there is set apart and yeah. for the work to which I have called them. So. You have uh, worship and service all together, and there's that word that uh, uh, dealing with the uh, liturgical. Got the marching orders, and so they do their ministry to the Lord by ministering to the people. Uh, they are devoted, they're vigilant, they're passionate about it, and uh, even when they're you know when they're fasting there, 
uh, fasting is a is still a, a key ingredient in, in worshiping God, and it's a great way to express devotion to Him. Some people do it because they can lose weight, <laughs> but that may not necessarily uh, get one in a spiritual tone. But it's really that we wouldn't spend even time about desiring food or anything, or, or there's an urgent matter. There, there can be different reasons for that, but it's so consumed in the cause of what the Lord may have in store for you and what He wants to speak to you. And so we don't really have a desire for food or it's abstaining from any any things of the world, really, not just food, but maybe some things that you'd ordinarily do that's not necessarily bad, but it's just taking some time off to seek... Um, his his will and there's a lot of reasons for it, a lot of good reasons. So fasting is still in uh, in the mode. Um, so that's that's what they're doing, and they're getting ready to disseminate the word of God in places that have never been disseminated. And that's exciting. This is where we're we're talking about mission, spiritual mission, number three here. And what you have are We're in verse, eh, around verse two. Verse, we're still in kind of in verse two. Um, of course, you have here these somebody speaks up. Of course, the Holy Spirit there is is speaking. You have prophets who have a special ministry before the completion of the New Testament here, and they have a direct word from the Holy Spirit right to the very life of the church. And the prophets there uh, would speak practical aspects of how to put that into their uh, lives, to, to put application. And they're right there in the midst. Maybe one of these five men here were uh, played that role as, as a prophet. Um, and probably in some cases they, they did both. Maybe some uh, pro- prophecy and also teaching of the Word and preaching. Um, but anyway, it says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Somehow that message gets across. Whether there was some kind of audible voice, I tend to think what God used is probably maybe uh, plural people, men there, or maybe one who it was very evident that uh, it was time to uh, send out these two uh, that had been separated. Somehow God's Holy Spirit made it clear to them. And there are a lot of times whenever there's a call to, um, well, we'll say, somebody to be a pastor or do some kind of mission work. Everybody's called to the Lord. Everybody's called to some ministry. And sometimes some might have a more clearer way than others, but I think one of the biggest reasons that you can know that you're called is it's something that you... Um, not only can do, but it's something you desire to do. It's something you've been gifted with and you can't help but do it. You want to do it. It's not because somebody told you to do it and you just never felt right about it, but um, it was because that um, you knew. You knew that God made that uh, clear to you. Uh, Sometimes it might take someone a while uh, to 
be, I guess, to know that. But usually somebody can uh, can know that this is this is where God has come in and made this happen. But there are little ministries that each one of us do. The opportunities come up, and there's a calling there to do that. And uh, hey, uh, I, God has given me this kind of ability to do, and I have this particular gift, and with this ability, uh, hey, whatever God wants me to do with it, hey, I, I'm I'm game. You know, I'll give myself up to to do that. That's 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 what we really are are about. And so He uses people to do His work. So God said, hey, I want two of the best five you've got. <laughs> now, I don't know if you can say the best, because they're all, they're all filled with God's Spirit. But He wanted those particular two. Now, can you imagine taking Barnabas out and then taking Paul out just like that? I mean, these are two giants already. I mean, you know, especially Barnabas. He's really known by the church. But there in Antioch, you know... Um, Paul was called by Barnabas to be there because he knew he could fill that role. He was there to help him. And now all of a sudden, he's going to go. And I'll tell you what, it's hard to have somebody who is very adept in God's Word or really has a desire to follow Him and, and all of a sudden he's taken out of your church. And I don't know why it is, but we've had a lot of young men taken out of this church down through the history of this church. And just whenever I thought, we're going to have those multiple elders, right? (laughs) Well, it didn't happen that way. They went on to either the seminary. um, They're preaching in churches now, doing um, that kind of work, setting up churches. It's kind of interesting. You look back and you go, huh. But at the same time, I didn't want those guys to go. But then I knew that, huh? Right, right. But you know what? They belong to God. They didn't belong to me. I, I was, um, but I knew that that's what they were called to do. That's fine. It's okay. So Antioch is saying, okay. Well, we still got three really good guys here, but we're going to miss these two guys. But it's still going to kind of be a headquarters. They'll still come back. So the church prays. The church fasts. Lays hands on them. church prays. The church fasts. The church is showing that they affirm them. Whenever you'd have the Old Testament sacrifices, people would lay their hands on the sacrificial animal. Why would they do that? Was some kind of magical thing happening? No. What it was saying is that I'm identifying now with this animal who's going to take my place. My sins, in in a symbolic sense, are being transferred to him for the time being. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, um, I'm identifying with this lamb, with this sacrifice. Uh, when when people lay hands on there, they're saying they're they're committed to them. They're going to pray for them. I'm with you. I'm gonna. I stand with you. You know, we're we're all with you here. So you'll see whenever deacons are ordained or pastors are ordained, you know, they'll lay hands on them. Or when people are sick, you know, lay lay hands on them. Identify with them. You're showing that, you know, um, that we we know what's going on. We feel for you. Um, we're we're part of this, you know, and and uh, that the, this prayer would really 
you know, have something, have some meaning that, yeah, you're not alone. And uh, we're here uh, all in, in agreement. And, uh, of course, amen, right? So we stand behind you with prayer and support as we send you off. And so that's what they did. When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. There's your apostles, apostello, right? Apo, to send away. They sent them away. They they could they could have continued in that same church and been the popular draw with the name that they would have there, but no, we're here to send people out. Hmm. So, verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, the city in Salamis. Cyprus. They began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. That's John Mark. When they had gone through the whole island, as part as far as Paphos, they found a magician. A, okay, stop there for a moment. We're getting ready to. They're being sent on the mission. They they were at Salamis. They preached the word of God in the synagogues. There were Jews there on this island. That's interesting, isn't it? John, their helper, that's John Mark. They departed to Seleucia, which is the, the port of Antioch. It's about 15 miles away. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And that was the home of Barnabas. So I'm sure he knew the island. And then they go to Salamis, city there. There they preached. And that was the principal trade city. It was a trade center. It was the largest city there on the island a great population of Jews. So guess where they go to first? Go to the synagogues. And there are probably a, a few of them there. I imagine there were probably some pretty big ones. Um, anyway, that's what they're doing. And so up to the first five verses, it's as usual and the way that you would expect it to go. They're preaching the Word. And there's some Jews that are taking this in and now we uh, get another Jew here the only thing is this is a spiritual battle so when you take the word of God out expect battles it always is the case may not be too soon may not be real soon it may be later but there will usually be battles and you look through our acts here or you look through the Paul's epistles, you will see that constantly. They're on the island of Cyprus, starting in Salamis. They go over to Paphos and they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew. His name is Bar-Jesus, son of salvation. That's what it means. What an amazing name for a guy who was a sorcerer. Son of Salvation. Now, Paphos was a really interesting place. This was the seat of the Roman government on the island there. is the center for the worship of Venus. You guys heard of Venus, right? Venus is that goddess of love, goddess of sex. Venus was born near Paphos. This was where she was spoken, as the legend goes. Right? She was born out of the foam of the sea. <laughs> 
she was worshipped in the most wild and most extravagant sexual orgies as one could dream up. And the city was a just a pit of sin. That's all there really was there. Wallowed in moral filth. And that's where Paul seems to be going to, as the other ones are. Have to take the Gospel out. You don't expect to really go to uh, real spiritual Christians, right? They're not there. It's a little wonder. They found a sorcerer there. Shouldn't be too amazed. False prophet. A Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. He's a magi. It's a positive connotation that can be wise and one who consults the stars like an astronomer would. You remember the magi during the birth of Christ, right? We don't know how many there were. They say the three wise men, but there could have been a lot more than that, but it was definitely numbers anyway. Uh, That's a positive sense, but there's uh, also the negative sense, and that's what we're looking at here. It's a superstitious, uh, the uh, cultic, uh, their uh, astrology. They consult the stars as astrologers. This is a man of the occult, not of science, but of a false religion. He's an evil man. He's a satanic man. He's a man who consulted demons. And it says in verse 8, tells us a little more about him. It says, but Elamus, there he has a name there, Bar-Jesus, who is also named Elamus, the magician, for so his name is translated, and there's the Magi, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So, he's a sorcerer, and Elamus the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, right? So he withstood them. Uh, he's a magus. Remember Simon Magus that Peter ran into? Well, this is very parallel to that same story. When Peter ran into Simon Magus, here we have Paul and his guys traveling with him, running into one who's a lot like that in, in some senses. And he wants to turn away the governor there, the deputy. Uh, he's he's what would be considered like Herod was uh, back in the day in in Israel. First, uh, I think what we have to realize is that we're in battle. We are in war. There are powers out there, and we battle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. By the way, that word Elamus, it's an Arabic root. It could come from the word uh, alamin, which means wise, or alama, which means powerful. You might be able to put those two together as far as Satan's emissary is concerned. Fast-talking, turncoat Jew. And he had rejected the true religion. And what he's trying to do is I think he's, he has himself attached to this leader of the country there, of the island. He, he's the main man. He is the governor of this, uh, that, uh, that who he's with there. Jesus is with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, as it says in verse 7. A man of intelligence. A very wise man in, him, in his own right. And uh, 
Sergius Paulus dabbled in the occult, if you follow that um, in that section, uh, whenever it seems like the false prophet, the magician, is tied to him in some way. And uh, so there was a constant contact or a contact that he had with the demonic world. If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, we get a name we're familiar with. We've heard many times. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. I think you have it right there. Doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy telling him to beware of what can go on. Just as Janus and... I'm sorry about that, Janus. Spelled differently though, isn't it? And Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. You look at verse 13. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We have quite the deceiver here. Uh, Seducing spirits, doctrines of demons... And I think I have to be concerned that any time that we want to get the gospel out there, there can be spiritual militants against us. There will be. And, of course, just before something can even get started, the enemy works so hard that it, that it won't even get started. Now, Satan not only resists on the outside... But he also can do it on the inside, and that's when you you have this guy by the name of John Mark, who we know that what he does, he starts on his journey, his missionary journey, and then he leaves. And of course, that called consternation between Paul and Barnabas. And Paul never forgot it. Now Barnabas is an encourager and a comforter, and he wanted for instant forgiveness. And Paul, we know that. Uh, you know, he knew that some discipline needed to be done there. But so there was a disunity, a discord, a unwillingness there of John Mark going as he bailed out. And he really didn't have a good reason other than he chickened out. And so you got an outside and inside thing happening, as as um, we know, as we uh, have different things going on. But uh, you have this governor, and I think this is interesting. He's a prudent man, a wise man, and he desired to hear the Word of God. Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. This is the main man on the whole island. And he wants them to come. What an opportunity. It would be just like us going, getting a chance to be invited to the governor's house. Certainly, I'll be glad to give the Word of God there. But... Elamus, the magician, or his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. Getting ready to finish this up here, but uh, how would you like to uh, have your eyes being looked right at by another man's eyes by the name of Paul? Uh, but anyway, this Roman governor, he's a Roman proconsul. Um, 
what a great opportunity, what great intentions that they have to present the gospel to him, right? Yeah. And then when you have this emissary of Satan right there trying to drag him away from the truth of God, we see Paul confront him. He set his eyes on him. Do you remember as a kid, when when your mom and dad, if that be the case, they would just look at you and they'd say, look at me. I remember doing that to, to my kids, especially one of them. And I'd take his chin and be looking down. Always looking down I'd, like that. I'd say, look at me. Look at me eye to eye. I want you to see me and I want you to hear me. We did, we did that quite a few times till he got it. <laughs> But that's what Paul wants. Look me right in the eye. You who are full of deceit and mischief, you child of the devil, you enemy of righteousness. Look, look what he says here. Paul, also is known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit when he said this. And that's, that's the key. Fixed his gaze on him and said, You are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. Now what is his name? Or Bar Jesus. Maybe that was a name that he took on himself. But here Paul says, No, you're not the son of the salvation or son of the Savior, but you're a son of the devil. That is going pretty far. And it's the truth. Um, how do you deal with the devil? Well, he took him right head on right here as the devil is using this occultist here. Bring peace here, Lord. Bring peace, right? Uh, he's saying, your name may be son of salvation, but you're a son of Satan. You're deceitful. And um, that means to do uh, what what he was doing. What He's at mischief. Uh, he's full of deceit and mischief. That means easy wickedness. He did wickedness with ease. He's deceitful. He's evil. The word deceit is, is the word for fish hook. And you know what a fish hook does. Looks so good, right, to that fish? Then he calls him that uh, son of Satan. He gives him not only a tongue lashing here, but um, God then comes in and just strikes him blind on the spot. Seems like God has done this other times, hasn't He? You who are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you are enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? The thing that's straight is trying to make it crooked. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Here you have being struck blind right there on the spot and an eye disease, and then you see the winning side of God. Even though it was all terror and everything was breaking loose there and great opportunity, and and uh, God takes care of it. You know what? 
You never know the sweetness of victory until you've been in the battle. And when you do win, and you're winning because the Lord is the captain, He's the winner. But it sure is nice. And I'll tell you, you walk out of there and you thank you, Lord. You guys have been a part of it. You've seen spiritual battles and you've seen when there has been victory, whenever there was absolute chaos. And you go, and when you taste that, matter of fact, you're almost thankful for that battle because it's so sweet when you win. But you were battling the enemy. Yes, it does. Isn't that beautiful? That's a good place to to stop it right there because he wins again. Have you ever noticed that? Every time there's these things that come up and then God just gives the victory again. So, spiritually minded people have spiritual ministry. God chooses us. He calls us to these spiritual missions. And we rely upon the very resources of the power of God. He's the one that does those mighty things. So we can know that uh, we we do have victory. And it's nice to taste those. I'm really, really thankful for those, right? The victory is ours. And what's the key? Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let Him control. Let Him control everything. Well, the church is getting ready to explode out into the world. And that's what we'll look at uh, Antioch in Pisidia. Not Antioch where we're at in Syria, but Antioch in Pisidia next time. And look at the great opportunity and message that Paul has. Stay tuned to next week. Paul will be preaching the Gospel. Wouldn't you love to hear what his message of the Gospel is?